As you're settling in, um, you'll want to find the book of Mark. Truly is good to be back here with you. I love to be here with you with our Bibles open together. And um, it's good to see folks with us who have been struggling with health issues and bitten by snakes and things of that nature. If you have not seen the picture circulating of the snake that uh, the Boston's killed in Richard's yard that we suspect is a snake that bit him, you need to ask. I don't know where they are anymore now, but uh, the Boston's have them. Doug has them. It's a large snake. That is really scary to me. I do not care for snakes. Richard, do you like snakes? Or? No. <laughs> As we um, get started this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter Two, starting at verse 18, uh, but before I read it, uh, help me brainstorm, and you can feel free to speak up. It's a, it's a low crowd this morning. We're, it's a, sort of a small group. We're here as a family, so we can interact a little bit. Um, it's okay to speak up a little bit, but help me brainstorm what are some of the common Christian practices that Christians are just expected to do? Go to church, okay? Tithe, pray. What else comes to mind? Love one another. What else would it be weird if Christians didn't do? The Lord's Supper. Yeah. Anything else come to your mind? Read the Bible. Yeah. A Christian that didn't go to church, didn't tithe, didn't pray, didn't love anybody, didn't do the Lord's Supper, didn't read the Bible. That would be really weird. Um, anything else pop into your, your minds? Okay, celebrate the big, the big two. Christian holidays. Baptize people. Okay, now think about uh, just our Doolin's Grove. You, many of you have been a part of our church for a long time. What, what are some of the common practices of Doolin's Grove church Christians that would be weird if Doolin's Grovers didn't do? Is there anything particular to us that we've just really gotten used to that would be strange if we didn't do it anymore? Eat. <laughs> you, that day will never come. You don't have to ever worry about that. Music, some handle snakes. I had a lot of pressure on me to do some snake handling jokes up here this morning. Lee and Rodney had me. Uh, with a with a wooden box with a fake rattle in it, and they had all kinds of schemes back there. If we'd had a, like a week ahead of notice, we could have gotten it together. What about think about our order of service on Sundays? Is there anything that would just be weird if we didn't do it? You're praying. Do you remember when we stopped doing the doxology for a little while? Was that weird for you? Yeah, it's muscle memory. As soon as you see the ushers come back, and when Jan stops the offertory, like you don't even know what's happening. You, if you're a part of Dillon's Grove Church for a long time, you just we stand and we sing the doxology. Uh, many of us have it memorized because we do it every week. There's a lot of there's a lot of um, practices that we accumulate as we go along our lives as Christians and as part of the church, and it's always been that way. And the practices are good; they're very good. Uh, this is not in any way an anti-practice sermon, um, but the passage we're going to read today, we're going to see Jesus in a very startling way, begin to reformulate the ancient practices that the Jews were used to. See, the, the Jews in Jesus' day were just like us, and they had things that you just did. 
And one of them was fasting. It was just something you did. Now, we didn't mention fasting in what we said because fasting isn't very common. At least if it is, it's usually kept more private, which I think is right. But fasting is a commonplace practice that the Jews of Jesus' time would have been used to. And it was weird to see practicing Jews not fasting. And so we're going to see in our passage here, starting in verse 18, um, an interesting dynamic in Jesus' ministry and for his disciples that I don't know that we've really ever thought about together since I've been your pastor. So it's going to be good. And we're going to start with verse 18. And I'll ask you to remain seated because we're just going to sort of pick our way slowly through this passage together. Verse 18 of Mark chapter 2 says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Now, who's John? John is John the Baptist. We met him in Mark chapter 1 way back when we first started in Mark. John appeared, this is Mark chapter 1 beginning at verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. So John had this hugely popular successful ministry of baptizing people in in a really significant river. Uh, for the Israelites, the Jordan River. And he was, he was strange. He was a really um, strange character. He wore, it tells us about his uh, fashion sense. Now, John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his, weight, his waist and ate locust and wild honey. So he's sort of a, a, a bizarre sort of prophet figure. That's John. And he Preach, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's talking about Jesus. So John is an example of a really faithful minister of God, a prophet. And he had a huge following of people who followed him and listened to his preaching about the one who was to come, who was Jesus. And he and his disciples fasted. So did the Pharisees. You may remember who the Pharisees are. We talked about them a lot. They are, just picture the most uppity, religious, hypocritical type of people. And that's what they were. Their main characteristic scripturally is that they were hypocritical about their religious practices, but their hearts were were evil and they, they didn't really believe the things they were doing. So we have John's disciples, we have the Pharisees. They were fasting. And people came to him came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Okay, so a third character enters the scene, the people. So you have John's disciples, they're following a really good faithful teacher. They're fasting. Okay, it may have been they had dates on their calendar that all the Jews fasted, and then many individual Jews would fast if they were going through a particularly hard time or if they really needed an answer to prayer or provision or maybe to commemorate some important event in their lives. So they may have been noticing uh, a big day of fasting that all the Jews did, or maybe just noticing that over time, John's disciples fasted, Pharisees fasted. They, we know, fasted two days a week, every week, they set aside for fasting. So these two groups are fasting all the time. And then these people who seem to be disengaged with all of this, they're not following John or the Pharisees or Jesus they're just like, you know, the, the folks that we know from the community and at work that aren't engaged at church. Um, you know, they're not reading their Bible or other Christian books. They may consider themselves Christians or maybe they don't. They're just not really engaged one way or the other. 
but they're curious and they notice these folks, you know, faithful Jews are fasting, but then here's this upstart prophet, Jesus, who's really creating a stir, healing like crazy, casting out demons, teaching with unbelievable authority. Everybody's talking about him. He, he's supposed to be the next big thing. And yet he and his disciples aren't fasting. So the people are curious, why is this group acting differently to all these others in regard to this long-standing Jewish practice of fasting? Now, verse 18 is just sort of teeing things up for, for Jesus' answer to these. So the big idea I want you to take away from verse 18 is this. Jesus and his disciples had and always have had a remarkably different way of using traditional religious practices. Jesus and his disciples have always had a remarkably different way of using traditional religious practices. Okay? So just get your mindset with that, and then we're going to hear Jesus answer why it is that he and his disciples did not fast during that time. So we'll proceed into verse 19 together. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, this is maybe strange language. You know, we don't use the word bridegroom, but just think groom. Um, The Old Testament often refers to God as the bridegroom, as the groom who's going to sweep up his people one day in sort of a big cosmic marriage ceremony, the church, his people. and, And we're described sort of as the bride. So here Jesus is identifying himself with God. And the Jews who knew their scriptures would have recognized that. So he's identifying himself as the bridegroom and he's saying, why would they fast? I'm here. You don't fast when you're at the wedding. We have, between me and Meredith, we have three gals, three cousins who are getting married within the next year. And Lillian's a flower girl in two, maybe three of them, I'm not sure. So we're going to be there. They're kind of scattered all around the the general area here. We're going to go. Uh, Meredith has been involved in a little bit of the wedding planning on one or more of these. A lot of work goes into planning a wedding. Any of you women can attest that a lot of work went into your wedding. That's right. You're engaged right now. forgot. A lot of work goes into planning a wedding. And a lot of that work goes into planning the menu. And often the RSVP, the RSVP card will come and you'll have your options, you know, chicken or fish or whatever, um, or possum or squirrel, probably when Will gets married. And uh, you check it off. And that's a big part of the celebration. You have the service and you have the reception. And the reception is the big, the joyous time. And we, we eat. You eat. And it would be really strange if this was your best friend getting married. You're the best man or you're the, not the best woman, the what is the other, the counterpart, the maid of honor? I'm not a wedding planner, as you can see. You know, you're the best man or the maid of honor. It would be really weird. You're seated at the table with the bride and groom and the, the servers come out and they bring the delicious food that they paid big money to serve. And you say, slide the plate away and say, no, thanks. I'm fasting right now. That would be really weird. Even if you're fasting, just break the fast, at least for the wedding day. In fact, the Jewish law made provision for, you know, religious Jews to be freed from those sorts of religious observances if they were going to be involved in a wedding. Because wedding practices back then, that that was the biggest party of anybody's life. That was the one time when when they would come together and they would be lavish. 
You know, they didn't have, they didn't eat out at Cracker Barrel every Sunday like we do. I mean, it was a big deal. You didn't fast on the day of the wedding. You didn't fast around the bride and groom. So Jesus is saying, first of all, the main reason that we're not fasting and my disciples don't fast is I'm here. I'm with them. Why would they fast? Fasting is often a, a mourning or longing sort of a practice. You say, they don't need to fast right now. They don't even need to observe the big Jewish fast days if they don't want to, because I'm here. Now, does this mean they would never fast? No, you can go into verse 20 with me. It says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. And he's projecting to when he's going to be killed and taken away and then you know, gone from our presence. Then they'll fast, and fasting is appropriate for us today. Um, I'm not teaching about fat. This isn't really about fasting. The shocking thing here, the shocking thing to the people, to John's disciples and to the Pharisees would have been the fact that Jesus spoke this way about such a long-standing practice. But what they didn't understand, the reason why it was so shocking is because they didn't realize Jesus is the purpose of all the practices. Jesus is the purpose of the practices. That's the other big idea. If you write things down, this is one of the big things I want you to take away. Jesus is the purpose of the practices, all the practices. Fasting is about Jesus. All these things we mentioned, reading our Bibles, is not about reading our Bibles, it's about Jesus. You're giving our tithes and offering is not just about giving tithes and offering, it's about Jesus. Singing the songs we sing, it's not just about singing, it's about Jesus. Coming to church isn't just about coming to church, it's about Jesus. None of these things are ends in of themselves. They're all means to the end of knowing Jesus, worshiping Jesus, experiencing Jesus. They all point to him. None of them are the point. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the purpose of the practices. Now, we do get confused about this. You know, especially we church folks, we get confused about this. Some of you perhaps thought I was really going to drill down on fasting during this sermon, and you may have started to feel guilty. I, don't, I have never successfully fasted. I tried, and then 30 minutes in, I was eating Snickers bars. And, and some of you may kick yourselves thinking, oh, I really need to read my Bible more. Any of you ever said that to yourself? I really need to pray more. I am a loser when it comes to prayer. I really should be praying more. Or you miss a Sunday and you have that sort of fear in the back of your mind. I really should have gone. Everybody's going to look at me and wonder where I was. I didn't even have a good reason not to go. I just didn't feel like getting up and going. I should have gone to church. I should read my Bible. I should pray. I really should fill in the blank. But remember, in Christ Jesus, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for you. You don't have to do any practices. If you trust and believe in Jesus Christ, you're in. You don't have to climb some ladder of good Christian practices to be accepted. The practices aren't the point anyway. Jesus is the point. So when you do feel that guilt, you haven't read your Bible in two weeks on your own. You haven't had any sort of quiet time. Our enemy's going to want to get in your ear and accuse you and say, what kind of Christian are you? You're not even practicing the practices. You might as well just give up. Might as well just go another week. Anytime you hear that guilt, that accusation, just remember, 
No, it's not about reading your Bible. It's about Jesus Christ, who's there, who loves you, who's paid, who's sacrificed everything for you, and who's waiting for you to speak to you here. You know, I don't want to teach my kids to read their Bibles. I want to teach them to love Jesus Christ, to trust Jesus Christ, and that he speaks to us here, and that you can get to know him, and that you can get close to him in relationship, and you can grow to trust him, and you can get to know Jesus Christ, not, oh, you can read your whole Bible in a year. Well, who cares? If you're just doing it as a thing to do, as a practice, none of these practices are the point. You see it, the confusion in some folks who are kind of disconnected from church. They've never really been connected and they aspire to do better. And some of you may be that way and you think, you know, I really do want to be a good Christian. You don't feel like you are now, but you feel like I really do want to be a good Christian. Well, what's a good Christian? I think often what we think of is when I get to that point that I feel like a good Christian... It'll be me reading the Bible all day long and me witnessing the people at the gas station every time I go and and me memorizing scripture and me serving in a role in the church. And then that's being a good Christian. But you can do all those things and miss the point of trusting, loving, serving, knowing, following Jesus Christ. So I just want you to to see the, the purpose is Jesus. The purpose isn't the practices. Those are just means to an end. You see it in worship wars. Have you ever heard of a church having a lot of really big trouble because they change something about the way they do things? Have you ever heard anything like that? It's happened. It has happened. You know, actually, I got a little bit of flack. And I don't want to make light of it because somebody, this was important to somebody, but I got uh, some anonymous flack about uh, beginning to project lyrics on the wall. And it came in the form of, why can't we use our hymnals anymore? Well, you can use your hymnal. I just thought it might be nice if it was up here. You don't have to shuffle the hymnals in and out. And you can look up and sing out instead of looking down and singing down. That's all. But somebody was really upset about that because the practice has always been, we get out the hymnal, we turn to the page, and we sing from the book. We've always done it this way. Have you ever heard that phrase? But we've always done it this way. Well, who cares? I mean, I mean, that's callous. I do care. I mean, I like tradition. I like these things, but we've got to remember they're all expendable. A fire could sweep through. All our hymn books could be burned up. What do we do? We can't sing because we don't have a book. No, of course we can sing. The hymnals were just part of a practice. The point was worshiping Jesus. And it's the same for, for everything we do. It's all expendable because none of it is the point. None of it is the purpose. Jesus is the purpose. Don't ever, don't ever lose sight of that. Don't ever get distracted by the practices. Always keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. We read our Bibles, we sing, we go to church, we give, we do all the things we do to meet, hear from, grow in relationship with, grow to trust more deeply, follow more closely, Jesus Christ. He's a real man. He really lives. He really seeks after us. He really is a shepherd to us as his sheep. He is the purpose of the practices. Now he goes on and he gives another reason in verses 21 and 22. 
He gives another reason for why they do not practice fasting right then. Let's read that one together. No one, this is Jesus responding to the people, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, these are strange analogies to us. I think they were they would have spoken to the original hearers much more clearly because they're used to that stuff. Because you guys probably aren't sewing patches on your clothes a whole lot. And you guys probably aren't pouring wine into wineskins a whole lot. So I'll just kind of explain what they mean. Um, what he says first about the cloth, unshrunk cloth or new cloth on an old garment. Um, my wife is fairly tall for a woman. And... Um, she has always struggled. She's not in here. I didn't approve this by her. <laughs> Might come back to haunt me. Um, she's always struggled to find any kind of pajamas that don't shrink up so that they're like up here instead of down here. And it has driven her crazy since I've known her. And I've tried to find her some and they just don't work. They start off too short or maybe they start off just right. But inevitably I wash it and I dry it and I ruin it. It happens every time. And see, our washer and dryer unit are in the outside storage closet at the Parsons. So I usually am the one that's, that cycles it through just, you know, so you don't have to go out there and deal with that. And uh, I just can't get it through my head. Check what it is that I'm putting in the dryer. Check before I dry it. Check before I dry it. And so I'll shrink her stuff all the time. And it drives her crazy. You know, a new cloth shrinks. So now let's say you have a favorite, I don't know, pair of pants or something. And it gets a hole in it. And you're going to go old school and you're going to sew a patch on it. Okay, what he's saying is, theoretically, at least with the cloth that they would have used, if you got a brand new cloth and sewed it on there and it fit perfectly, eventually it would shrink. And it would shrink and do more damage than originally because it would rip up. It would rip apart at the seams. So he's saying they're not fasting now because these old practices, the way you've always understood them, they cannot attach to me. I'm too new. What I am bringing is too new. And then the other one, the wineskins... Um, I know, I understand less about this, but from my understanding and my reading, that's how they held their wine was in animal skins that were, you know, put together to hold wine. And um, an old wine skin had lost its elasticity. It wouldn't expand anymore. So if they put new wine in, something about the fermentation process caused gas to release. And it needed to have wine skin that could expand in order for it to do what it needed to do. And so if you put new wine in an old wine skin, it's going to fill up the old wine skin. And then when things start to expand or gases or whatever happens, it's going to pop, explode, destroy the wine skin and the wine all over the ground. Okay. So essentially what Jesus is saying is my disciples don't fast because I am bringing something new, a new phase of God's movement in history that is so big and so revolutionary and so new that the old practices cannot attach to it and cannot contain it. This, this would have been revolutionary. This would have blown the minds, especially of the Pharisees. John's people, they might have been a little bit more ready for it because John's been preaching about Jesus for a while. But the Pharisees, I'm sure their brains just probably popped and they passed out right there on the spot because they loved the practices. They loved it. And they loved to judge other people for not doing the practices. And here Jesus is very open-handed with them. 
if you read his teaching, you'll see often he'll say things like to the Jewish people, you have heard it said, fill in the blank, but I say, fill in the blank. So he, he says, for example, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery. Okay, all the Jews knew that. But I tell you, even if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're committing adultery with her. There's this newness that's taking it another step forward. It's not a total break with the Jewish tradition. It's just taking it in a whole new giant leap forward. He says, you've heard it said you shouldn't murder anyone. And the Jews would have been like, yeah, I've heard that. He said, but I say to you, if you hate someone or you curse them with your words, it's the same as murdering them in God's eyes. He comes and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, the Jews were used to longing for the kingdom to come. And Jesus is on the scene. He says, it's here now. Newness, explosive newness that just blew up everything that they were used to. You know, the Lord's Supper that was mentioned earlier, he is, during the Lord's Supper, he is completely redefining the elements of the Passover meal that the Jews for many, 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 many years, generations, had known to mean one thing about the Exodus. He redefined to mean about himself. And he says, this is about the new covenant in my blood. See, this was revolutionary. This was remarkable. This is really important for us to get. And we already noticed, I had you, if you write, write down, Jesus is the purpose of the practices. The big idea I want you to get here is that Jesus is the Lord of the practices. He's the purpose of the practices and he is the Lord of the practices. Lord means that he has absolute ownership rights. And when we say Jesus is my Lord, what we're saying is he has absolute ownership rights over me. He has more say over me than I have say over me. And when, when I say that Jesus is the Lord of the practices, I mean he has absolute ownership rights over everything that we do as Christians. Just like there, here he shows that he has absolute ownership rights over everything the Jewish people did in their traditional religious practices. He has such authority, he can tell his disciples, don't worry about it. You don't have to fast. I'm with you. Now, this means a lot of things for us. For one thing, it means that no element of Christian practice is ever a hill to die on. No element of Christian practice is ever a hill for us to die on. We ought to never, ever split up over differences in how we want to practice our pursuit of Jesus Christ. I never want to hear us arguing. Now, we can express our opinions over practices, and we should. You guys have opinions that are valid, and many of you have years and wisdom beyond what I have, because old people, and I'm just kidding, that just kind of slipped out. But we ought to never, we ought to never grow to like apart and hate each other over differences in how we want to practice our pursuit of Jesus Christ. Because the practices aren't the Lord, Jesus is the Lord. So what, what practices would it really shake you down to your core if it was taken away from you? I think we need to think about it now because who knows what he may choose to do. For one thing, intense persecution should break out and we, some, our practices may become not even an option anymore. We might not even be able to meet openly in this building anymore one day. I don't think that's going to happen, at least not in our lifetime. But What practices would it really shake you down to the core if they got stripped away from you? What if God gave Doolins Grove Church a, a vision 
that was completely scriptural, completely biblical, but completely different from anything Doolin's Grove Church has ever, ever, ever done before. You know, we've had our, um, our history committee compiling our archives and our records of Doolin's Grove, and it's been fascinating to see the church and how it began and how it progressed and got to where we are today. Um, you know, what if the Lord did a new work among us, a, a wineskin bursting sort of work, a cloth ripping sort of work? Would you be able to handle that if it looked completely different? I think it's good for us to think about now and to settle down deep in our hearts now this fact, this truth, that Jesus is Lord of the practices. He can change everything about what we do and how we do it because he is why we do it. Jesus is the point of the practices. Jesus is the Lord of the practices. May we use every practice. May we use our Bibles, our singing, our attendance at church, our witnessing, our prayers. May, may we use every form of practice at our disposal to know, trust, and follow our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.